I was just thinking there as we were singing some of those lines. That, um, when you think of that first resurrection when the Lord Jesus, first Easter, and he's alive and he's on the Emmaus Road with the disciples, and of course they don't recognize him initially. So here's a man who'd been brutally murdered, and yet he's walking, living, breathing, talking. It, it is huge. But what does he do? He draws their attention to the Bible. It's amazing, isn't it? And this close connection, um, the mind of God revealed in his words. So it's a really great theme, isn't it, for us to be thinking about. And and I, I always, I often think of that on that Emmaus Road. And, and he then begins to explain the scriptures, to demonstrate that the Bible had predicted what would happen, and that he would suffer, and so forth. And uh, it's, it's, it's a tremendous thing. Now, we're going to put yeah, this morning we had a, a long chapter, a, a big story as it were, whereas this evening we just have one main verse, although I'm really glad that uh, Richard did read verse 15 because he talks about rightly handling the word of truth and, and that's a significant statement. Now, uh, the setting of words helps our appreciation of the actual words themselves. I mean, some things are just funny and you can say it and immediately it clicks. I heard one yesterday of Mark Twain's. That you hear all these the wonderful quotes from Mark Twain. One was, was a great one. A great one for church members, this one. Why put off to tomorrow what you can do the day after tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just remember that. But, you know, say, so you don't need any context. It's just funny. But then other words take all their significance from the context. Um depending a little bit on your age uh, let me try out with something so if I if I say to you I'm going to give you a short phrase or, or part of a sentence even and, and, and uh, see, if it, see if it means anything to you the setting is everything I have a dream so what's that what is that and you think of the civil rights thing in, in the 60s in America and the whole thing I've, I've stood on those steps where he, where he gave uh, uh, one of his addresses, I think he may have given that one. I think it probably was the same time on, on the, the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. All right, try another one. I won't finish it off, but somebody somebody might. Never in the field of human conflict. And what's the next bit? So many, so, so much to so few. That's it. And, and again, you think of the, con- the, con- that, the particular context of those words is the Battle of Britain. Uh, one more, we could go on all night, couldn't we? Um, what about this one? Uh, although I can't remember. I, I've got a, well, enough to serve our purpose. Ask not what your country can do for you. Can. Yes. And the next line is, but what you can do for your country. Um, and I'm not, the only my problem is I can't remember which speech that was. I'm not sure if it was the one which really kind of paved the way for Vietnam. It was his inauguration. That's it. Uh, And there were things in there that kind of paved the way for Vietnam and all that. So a a little phrase just like that, and the context is is huge, and that's what gives the words a significance. And so when when we read this little phrase, I mean, when you think of how many great words the Apostle Paul was inspired to write, it is amazing when he writes this. This, this statement uh, in, in verse 9, which is particularly the end of it when he says, but the word of God is not bound. 
And Richard rightly read it with emphasis. And the setting of Paul, the great apostle, but in prison, and writing to Timothy, his associate, the young man that he's helped and trained. In fact, you go to in early in Acts, he brings Timothy in as quite a young man and clearly spends time and develops him. And then eventually Timothy's entrusted with tremendous leadership in the church. So the setting of words really helps our appreciation. And that's a great statement. The word of God is not bound. And he's bound. He's chained. Uh, And one writer put it like this. With this letter, Paul's role in the biblical story comes to an end. Since we are so much in his debt, we do well to heed carefully the appeals to loyalty in this letter and faithfulness and responsibility. The letter urges Timothy to come to Paul's side, but mostly offers him a kind of last will and testament. And in a sense, that's, that's what this, this little letter is. It's, 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 it's a gift to Timothy. Now, as, as was pointed out to us, uh, and when we read verse 15, the word, said the word of God, which is, 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 can be a bit of a code, can't it really? For it, it can embrace the whole of God's revelation. It can focus particularly on the gospel. It may even be, as we know, a title of the Lord Jesus himself. The word, the written word, can be mishandled or manhandled and the word went from Paul to Timothy and it was going to go on to reliable men and so on and so on down through the years Uh, and in a climate of trouble and opposition Paul outlines here what scripture is and what it is for you remember that beautiful passage a little bit later chapter 3 and and um, when he talks about the nature uh, of Scripture. Um, particularly, think I'll pick it up from verse 10. You, however, again, bearing in mind the context and the relationship of these two men, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then he says these famous words, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings or the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So this is what scripture is for. And then he makes this wonderful statement. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work so Paul in this in, in this environment of, of suffering and hardship for the gospel makes that statement now of course another thing to remember here is that this the this letter and these words of, of Paul are uttered on the edge of eternity because in chapter 4 um, 
he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, and so forth. And then verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So again, this, this all adds tremendous weight to, to his words. When he, when, and, and you know, we're focusing in on a particular comment that he makes, or statement that he makes. But he's on the edge of eternity. Now, a little bit, it, it's tied up with this, but it's a, a little bit a subject on its own, but it's relevant to mention it. That there is actually, in, in this, these four short chapters, there is a, a, a theology of suffering just within this short letter. Now, and if you like, there's Paul's counsel to Timothy on suffering for the sake of the gospel. He's not speaking about suffering in general. He's certainly not speaking about suffering philosophically. He's talking about the sufferings of the servant of God for the sake of the gospel encountered in the world. And I've got a, a bit of a lengthy quote is this, but I'll read it to you because it's worth it um, just to think on it. And Whilst in one sense it's a, it's, a, it's a slight digression, but it is nevertheless appropriate. The relation between Paul's sufferings and the effectiveness of the gospel is not just one of contrast. So, for example, he's not saying, I am chained, God's word is not. So there's a contrast. It's actually one of cause and effect. Therefore, I endure that they also may obtain, this is God's elect, salvation. For Paul preaches and suffers that they may obtain. The elect obtain salvation in Christ, not apart from the preaching of Christ, but by means of it. Further, it's not just the preaching, but also the resultant suffering, which are the means of the elect's suffering. Paul's statement that in some sense the salvation of others is secured by his sufferings may at first astonish us. Yet it is so. Not, of course, that his sufferings have any redemptive efficacy like Christ's, but that the elect are saved through the gospel and that he could not preach the gospel without suffering for it. It is another case of glory through suffering. The eternal glory of the elect through the sufferings endured by the Apostle. Now there's a lot to think about in there. And it's this cause and effect. Yes, as, as, as people go out into the world to preach the Gospel, often that is at great cost. And obviously in some contexts a lot more than others. We don't face, you know, a kind of a cruel, aggressive persecution, but we, we tend to face more indifference and ridicule and contempt or even just just being completely ignored but even that is is part of it now the witness of the book of acts uh, that whatever it is this that whatever comes against the word or stands against it or whatever comes at it god's word cannot be re, 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 um, uh, confined or chained or even restrained. Time and again, some problem, some obstacle, some opposition is swept away and the word advances. Now, 
it's interesting. Oh, it was many years ago. That I can't remember the, the particular commentary, but somebody identified that. And of course, if you read the book of Acts, you've got a 30-year period. You've got this little beginning of the church, these frail band of people. The Holy Spirit comes there, transformed. They begin to preach. And, and it, the whole book moves through a kind of a 30-year period. And you move from Jerusalem and you finish up at Rome. The very heart of the empire. But it's very interesting, there are about five or six moments where it talks about opposition, but the word advancing. Um, what, let me give you one example, Herod in Acts chapter 12. And uh, that particular Herod, of course, is a family of Herods, is a, there's a right line of opposers of God's word, even though Herod Agrippa the second gets to hear the gospel very clearly from Paul later on. But, you know, Herod uh, imprisoned, well, he killed James, and he imprisoned Peter with the intention of killing him. Uh, and later on, there's a big public speech and so on. And uh, God strikes him dead. And when he, it's, it's quite a graphic story, the whole thing, because Peter's broken out of prison by an angel from heaven. And then he goes and finds the Christians at the prayer meeting who are praying but not really believing that somehow the Lord is going to free him, but he's there. Um, and then he makes a big speech and so on. On the appointed day, at the very end of Acts 12, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now there are sort of other historical details about this. Um, Josephus. And I'm pretty sure he describes the scene where Herod is wearing some kind of a sequined garment that sparkles in the sun. So he's like kind of beaming and reflecting the light. But it says this. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And the book of Acts proceeds like that. There are lots of little moments when that kind of phraseology is used. And the word of God advances. But so that, this is, when we, when we read the statement here in, in 2 Timothy, uh, he says, but the word of God is not bound. This is Paul's conviction. He really believes this. He's absolutely persuaded of this. It, this is Paul's confidence. So, in the face of all opposition, he's confident to keep on doing what he has to do. As he said himself, he, he learned how to be content in any situation. But his confidence was in the word of God. And then, but it's also his comfort. Because he's in prison now. And he's chained. And he's kind of locked away. But his comfort is the word of God is not chained. It's impossible to chain the word of God. It's like we learned this morning, it's impossible to burn it. And eradicate it. And so I like to think of it this way. Paul wants to communicate this truth. About the truth. To Timothy. Now you think about just some of the statements. That the Lord Jesus made about. The word of God. Man does not live by bread alone. But by every word that comes from God. That's one of those statements. It's a very kind of simple words. But if you sit down and think about it, it's absolutely staggering. What about this one? Heaven and earth 
shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus said that. Again in his prayer in John 17, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Then again in that same prayer, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So there's this tremendous confidence on the part of both the Apostle and indeed the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the first part of verse 9. which, Well, pick it from verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, (coughs) risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. When he says my gospel, what he means is the gospel of God to which I am committed and which I preach. Not the gospel that I designed or came up with. No, it's my gospel. It's the gospel of my salvation and, and, and it's my job to preach it. That's, that's what he means, what he means by that. Then he says, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. So the servants of the word put the word before themselves. I mean, this is true of all the great laborers in the world. Whether you think of missionaries or preachers or Christians in a whole range of situations that just spoke the word of God. And because God's word cannot be bound or chained, we find Paul, and it's a challenge to ourselves, doing a few things. This is what comes into verse 10. So he says, but I'm in chains, chains like a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, what, and what happens? What is the therefore? He says, I endure everything. Therefore, he shows endurance in everything. And that say, he says that later on in the passage as well. About showing endurance. And he even says to Timothy, you know what I endured. I had to endure an awful lot of things. And of course, if you want an example of that, you can go to 2 Corinthians uh, 10, 11, 12, and you can have a catalogue of Paul's sufferings on behalf on for the gospel. Now, what it, wherever gospel workers work, there are particular things that are to be endured. And we've already said that what we kind of experience in this country, uh, in some countries, of course, it, it, it's like the gentleman that we, we had, the pastor whose photograph was up this morning, the Chinese situation. I mean, Europe is is very because I'm working in in context of European Mission Fellowship. Europe's very diverse. Of course, remember Europe's a lot bigger than the EU. People and after the referendum, people were ringing the EMF office and saying, "What's EMF's view on the referendum and all this?" And we, you know, say, "Well, we don't have a view." <laughs> but the thing is this, because there'll be many different views, as we know. But the thing is this: Europe is far bigger than the European Union. There's at least another twenty countries. There's 48, 50 countries in Europe. It's huge. And uh, gospel workers will have to endure different things in those different countries. give you an example of this. If you think of Catholicism as as a kind of a huge religious machine. Now we know that that's been very much in the news in recent days because of all the the scandals and so forth and and the recent Pope at least seeming to do something about it. But Catholicism, so we've got people who work in Italy, Spain, Portugal. But in each of those countries, the way in which you have to be careful in relation to Catholicism is different. 
I mean, in Portugal, the Roman Catholic Church owns huge parts of the country. And then, if, of course, if you're in Italy, that's one thing. If you're in Spain, even in different regions. So if you're a gospel worker seeking to just simply preach the gospel, you'll have to face different things. And then, of course, Eastern Europe, you get to the Orthodox churches. And, that, and that's a whole different ballgame again. And, for example, in Greece, a church like this would be just considered to be a sect. Because the Orthodox Church in Greece is 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 just so strong, and in Poland, to be Polish is to be Catholic. And uh, in fact, you'd be surprised just how Poland is is absolutely desperate in terms of its need, because you have loads of cities of tens of thousands of people with no evangelical church. Um, and uh, if, you, if you keep an eye on the EMF website or some of our communications or even get a prayer letter from some of our Polish workers, you might be quite shocked at how difficult the situation is. But whatever it is, and again, this is a feature of EMF's work, some, some groups work where they'll maybe put in a, a, something in for three years, five years, and then move on. EMF is, is well known for working with indigenous workers over the long haul. So many of its workers have been there 25 plus years. Uh, it takes time. And they all endure different things. I, I use that as an illustration, I mean, of, of this, the same spirit of this. When he's called a criminal here, he said, I, I, I'm bound with change as a criminal. This is exactly the same word that is used of the men who were crucified with Jesus. So he's being treated like an absolute, uh, almost a terrorist, I don't know, it's a strong word. Maybe that's a hint of the way in which Rome is beginning to view the Christian faith. But then think about Paul himself. So he endures now. But actually he made other people suffer. We know that from his own testimony. We know that from the book of Acts. He was told, when the Lord Jesus confronted him on the Damascus Road, he was told that he would have to suffer, or he would suffer things for the sake of Jesus. And actually, the apostle took and accepted that suffering because he never forgot Jesus' suffering for him. Mission, whether it's in Madrid, or you know Rome, or Warsaw, wherever, or Othley, or Brighouse, mission calls for endurance. And quite simply this, a word that cannot be bound inspires endurance. That was the quality. So, that, so he, he makes the great statement, but the word of God is not bound, therefore I endure everything. So he, he takes it on board and he endures it. Uh, and that's how he feels about it. And because God's word cannot be bound, he says something else. And let's just keep following his, his flow of thought. Therefore, I endure everything. It's not just hanging there. It's part of a sentence. For the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. So actually, he endures everything in his preaching of the gospel, in his confidence in this word that cannot be bound. For the, he, he makes the elect his care. 
Now, if you look at chapter uh, 2 and verse 19, there's another statement to this effect, where he says this, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. God has his elect. Europe has its elect. In every continent, God has his elect. And God's election, this, this, this eternal counsel of God, is, and evangelism are friends, not foes. Somebody put it like this, the doctrine of election does not dispense with the necessity of preaching, on the contrary, it makes it essential. And so because of his confidence in this word that could not be bound, he endured everything for the sake of the elect. He would go out and preach the gospel freely. And then look at what he says a little bit, just a little bit further on. When the sentence finishes here, it says that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. So that's the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, justification, sanctification, ultimately glorification. This this great salvation that he says in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So he kept eternal glory in his view. So places and peoples have their own unique histories. Gospel workers labor for eternity. And if you turn, if you turn back for a sec to chapter um, 1 of 2 Timothy, just look at verse 10 in that chapter. It's interesting what he says there. Oh, maybe I should go back a little bit further. Verse 9. Who saved us. This is the Lord through the gospel. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works. But because of his own purpose and grace. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Before the ages began. And which now has been manifested. Through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Who abolished death. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's, it's, it's there again. Gospel workers labor for eternity. Gospel workers keep eternity in view. And when people, when gospel workers like Paul are, 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 are somehow, in his case, in prison, his confidence is in a word that could not be bound because it's moving on into an eternal future. As somebody put it like this, and this is this is a lovely statement, and I, I find this really fitting with this this um, situation. So he's chained, he's restricted. Now, when you think of his travelling and his energy and what this man was, you know, it's it's a big thing, isn't it, to be, you know, locked up. He's not the sort of man that liked to put his feet up and just lie back and and do nothing. It must have been quite a challenge. Well, this writer says this. Paul was very far from despair. You can exile a man. Now think of the harmony with this with this morning, what we were thinking about. You can exile a man, but you cannot exile the truth. You can imprison a preacher, but you cannot imprison the word that he preaches. The message is always greater than the man. The truth is always mightier than the bearer. Paul was quite certain that the Roman government might imprison him but could never find a prison whose bars and fetters could contain and restrain the word of God. 
Now this is important. Here, this next little sentence is, is really important. One of the facts of history is the irresistible might of the word of God. Now he's saying it's a fact of history. He's not saying this is a nice devotional thought. He's saying this is a fact of history. If human effort could have obliterated Christianity, Christianity would have perished long ago. Men cannot kill that which is immortal. Isn't that good? And it's true. Because at various points in history and in different places, if the Christian faith could have been stamped out, and if it had not been of God, it would have gone. Men cannot kill that which is immortal. It's impossible. And uh, Spurgeon had the, you know, Charles Spurgeon, who uh, most of you will know of him. He was a famous preacher in Victorian times, and uh, but very faithful to the gospel and had a lovely way of expressing things. But he he heaps up ideas on this theme, and I, I found this really encouraging. He says, "In what sense is it true that the word of God is not bound?" He says, "It's not bound." So that it cannot be preached. You know, if, 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 if somebody imprisons a priesthood, the Lord will raise up another one. Not bound so as to be no longer a living, working power among men. Who has ever stopped the Word of God changing lives? Not bound so that it cannot reach the heart. Not bound as to its power to comfort the soul. Not bound in the sense that it cannot be fulfilled. Who can actually prevent any of God's word being fulfilled? Not bound so that it cannot endure and prevail to the end. Now, there are two glass cases that testify to this. Now, sometimes in different parts of England, when I mention this, because it's, I find this interesting little illustration of of this truth historically and it's the historical aspect that's important as well but uh, living down near London we were able to go to the British Library a few times <coughs> which is great and free and um, so there, there is a, now if I've got this right you go through the main entrance and you go up the steps the first little flight of steps and over in the left hand corner is the treasures room now it's, it's very diverse because you've got all loads of ancient manuscripts and then you've got a piece of paper drafted some of the Beatles' early songs. Like it's all scratched on, you know. It's on the same kind of level. But there we are, and that's what you get in these places. But there's in one glass case, there's a huge glass case with lots of biblical manuscripts and so on. And in there, there's a little book. It's probably about half the size of this, yeah, these Bibles. So if you think of that sort of size there, maybe a bit bigger. And it's Tyndale's New Testament. And it's in that glass case. And there is... The thing about that 1526 edition was that it was the first time we had the Bible in English directly from the Greek language. That's very, very important. And it was, it was momentous. And, and later on it became very significant for the authorised version which then had a, a profound and extensive history, in, of course, in, in, in our country. But that little testament testifies to the fact that God's word cannot be bound. 
especially if you go, and this is the place where people people don't know. I'm, I'm on safe ground here, you see. Humminbay. You know where Humminbay is, don't you? And you say that when I go to different parts of England, you say, Humminbay, they have no idea, of course. Why would they, I suppose? But in Humminbay, now I don't know, it's years since I've seen this, so it may have been moved, but if you Google it, you can see a picture of it. There is the uh, 1539 chain Bible. It's a big one. And when Tyndale was put to death, his crime being translating the scriptures, you may, some of you will know his dying prayer was regarding Henry VIII, O Lord, open thou the King of England's eyes. And by the time he died, he had revised uh, his, his original translation and supplemented it with other parts of the Bible and eventually with the help of some friends. And uh, if you want to know more about it, ask Lyndon, he'll tell you. And, and they, they did the 1539. And it was, it, ironically, it's called the Chain Bible because it was put there for public reading and it was chained so that people wouldn't nick it. And it's in that glass case. There are not that many of them. And there was one up in Humminbay in the Anglican church up there. Now, I don't know whether they've moved it, but it, you could actually see it at one time. So it, I don't know if it's still there. But I remember seeing it the year we were at Reading. And uh, on beach missions, I think that was 1981, that's when I saw it. But these two cases, these last cases with these two books in them, one's a great big one and one's a little one, they testify to the truth that God's word cannot be bound. I mean, it had been locked away. I mean, we did have an English Bible translated from the Latin, the Vulgate, and then we had a, a Wycliffe's translation. But then this was now directly from the original language. It's very significant, you know, because, for example, he translates the word ecclesia, church, he translates it as congregation, not church. And you can get you can get a, a modern spelling edition of the, the final revised one, which was 1534, and I've got a, a re- and it reads remarkably well. Of course, you can be brave and try the old kind of orthographical print, and it's, that's really difficult. But but the the, the the modernized one, just with the spelling, is really good to read. But you see, Tyndale devoted his considerable energies and gifts to making sure ordinary people had a Bible in their hands and he paid for it with his life but then the Bible did become available and when you think then that's 1526 which leads into 1534 and then if you like from the mid 1550s through to the mid 1650s you've got a golden age of preaching and teaching of the word of God and an awful lot and we still have an awful lot of that literature of course available to us but this is a testimony a historical actual testimony that you cannot bind chain, lock up or this morning burn the word of God so I come back to what I said this morning uh, and it and it fits in with what Paul what Paul had and what we we can we can establish this is our conviction. Is it your conviction? I I, I do believe it is, and it's certainly my conviction that the word of God cannot be bound. And this is the truth. It's not the truth about everything, but it's the truth about everything that really matters in an ultimate and eternal sense. Make it your confidence.
So we haven't, we haven't got to be afraid. I'm going to be afraid of sharing it appropriately and, and in diverse contexts. I mean, the, the famous thing of Martin Luther is when he said about the Reformation and his part in this, we did nothing, the Word did everything. And it will be your comfort. I think, and as you get older in life, and you see things from like a, the, the, per, the perspective of experience of, of many things as life rolls by, it will increasingly be your comfort. To just simply turn to the words. I mean, even this lovely letter that we have here from Paul to Timothy. It's a wonderful thing. So, let's have our confidence in it. Let's, let, let's, let's, let's make this our conviction. You know, it's well rooted. It's well, it's, it's well established. It, it, we can have full confidence and, and conviction in it. And it will be our comfort. So, let's sing our final hymn, which will mysteri- uh, wonderfully appear on the screen. I was going to say mysteriously, but it's not that mysterious. Uh, Tell on my soul the greatness of God. Tender to me the promise of his word. These are, these are lovely words. So, let's sing this lovely hymn.